afternoon, everybody. My name is Brian Rothman. I'm from the Comparative Studies Department at this university. Um, before I introduce Nick, I, I can't help but uh, say something about that image. Um, for those of you who know something about uh, British gestures, you, you, you might know that the standard gesture that Winston Churchill uh, projected across the British population during the Second World War was that. <laughs> if you do that, then th you do what the Americans do when they're driving, which is that. <laughs> so I, I don't quite know how Nick got that, uh, whether he's reversed, <laughs> whether, he's rever whether it's a negative, a left-right transposition. But all right. Well, then, I, Nick, perhaps you will mention. Anyway, it's a pleasure for me to introduce Nick Rankin. I've known Nick since the early 70s. When I first uh, met him, he was wearing a poncho, um, just come back from South America, wearing a poncho and smoking a cigarillo, cigarillo, I should say, and he looked as if he just walked off a lot of a spaghetti western. Um, but unless that gives you too loose a description of him, he had, in fact, um, read to Borges when he was in Buenos Aires. Borges was blind at the time, recruited many readers, and Nick was very proud to have been one of them. So apart from the Spaghetti Western, he was doing some work for Western civilization. Um, okay, it was already 30 years ago, and it's, it's a rather surreal for me to introduce him because we have houses in London which are quite close. So to meet in Columbus, as I say, it's, it's a very, very odd experience. Um, uh, Nick at heart is a journalist, um, as he will tell you, and he spent 20 years in the BBC World Service producing a large variety of, of programs. At one time, I remember he was producing an arts program, and anybody who was anybody who went through London ended up in his studio being interviewed, sometimes grilled, uh, by him about their artistic profile and what the hell they were doing in London and why were they interesting and so on. Um, and these were much admired. Even more admired were a long series of programs that he did, or rather programs in many parts. Um, one in particular was a much acclaimed thing, a part, a eight part series called The Secret History of the Planet, uh, which did the rounds in all sorts of, uh, was distributed in all sorts of places. Um, and I must say it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, so he's a journalist, but he's also a journalist mainly of the past in terms of his written work. Uh, his first book uh, was on Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, he followed Robert Louis Stevenson's footsteps from Scotland to Samoa, where Stevenson died. And Nick went to all the stages of it, well, all the stages of the cross from, uh, from Scotland to Samoa, um, recording what he saw in a, in a beautifully evocative book about Stevenson. The second book he wrote uh, was, was, about, was centered on, on Guernica. Um, he'd done a program at the BBC on, on Guernica, the Picasso painting, uh, and that led him uh, to conduct an in-depth uh, account of the events around. Sorry, did you not? Yeah. Well, well, don't look. Sorry, I didn't want to give the game away there. All right, uh, all right keep away. Uh, Guernica, second book. Um, 
And it was, in fact, the discovery for the world of a figure that had been completely obscured, but who played a seminal role in the reporting of that war for the uh, English public, for the Times newspaper, um, and it was George Steer. We now know who George Steer was and what he did and how that event was reported to the British public as a result of Nick's, uh, Nick's book. Um, his third book, which, is, uh, which has brought him here today to the center, uh, is about deception and war, and he will tell you all about it. I don't really want to gloss it at this stage. Um, so he's a journalist of, uh, of, of war, and he's a historian in the sense that his journalism has always been about the past. Um, so the sponsors here are the Merchant Centre, obviously, uh, for his work on deception uh, uh, and all that surrounds it, and the History Department, because as I say, his research has been always about historical events. Uh, he's also sponsored by the Theatre Department. Uh, um, the Theatre Department, under the sort of direction or the guidance, I'm not quite sure, of Leslie Ferris, uh, is producing something called a camouflage project, at least that's the working title, and it's all about camouflage, and it has a very strong narrative in it to do with camouflage in the Second World War. And Nick is here as an advisor and general sort of resource. And so he's also sponsored his visit here by the Theatre Department. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce Nick Rankin to you. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you very much indeed. Um, well, he's taken away. You all recognize who that man is, and I did put that picture up as being rather comic because it is the wrong kind of gesture. But um, the book, which is there, called A Genius for Deception, that's the American title. It's coming out next week. Was, when it was first published in English, was called Churchill's Wizards. And Churchill is a dominant figure in uh, this historical period. The book is about both world wars. So it's the, the subtitle was Churchill's Wizards, the British Genius for Deception, 1914 to 1945. Because Winston Churchill, well known to all of you as the Prime Minister in the Second World War, played a major role in the First World War. He started it as First Lord of the Admiralty, and he had, was in the trenches. Um, uh, he authored the Gallipoli, the Dardanelles campaign, and then he was uh, Minister of Munitions. He wrote a huge history called The World Crisis, as he wrote a huge history, you know, the Second World War of the second one. And Churchill was a man who never liked to be paralyzed. He always wanted to find some new technique, some new way of getting out of a jam or a difficulty. He had a very inventive kind of a mind. Um, I think it was President Roosevelt who said, Mr. Churchill has 100 ideas a day, and four of them are good. Um, <laughs> And so he was this fizzing creature of trying to find new ways. And he liked <coughs> ruses and deceptions and new techniques. And so he is the presiding spirit of this. It is not to say that he himself is, um, you know, totally running it. Now, here is Churchill. And we have to remember that Churchill was a warrior all his life. His great, you know, his ancestor was John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough. Again, a user of deception in warfare, but a great uh, war leader. And here is this young boy. Look at that lovely seven-year-old there, this truculent figure in his sailor suit. When the Royal Navy rules the world, here he is. And there he is, 28, in the Hussars, in his Hussar uniform. He was going to be a soldier all his life. 
And in fact, he was under fire, age 21, in Cuba. He got his first medal in Cuba uh, with the Spanish forces, gone as an observer. And he was always trying to get into scrapes, get into battles. He signed up to go on the Malacan Field Force, which, would you believe, was leading a punitive expedition into Waziristan. So some problems never go away at all. He was in a cavalry charge at the Battle of Omdurman. You know? uh, so here he is, um, Churchill, the warrior. Now, <laughs> this picture, Second World War picture, <laughs> was taken by the Nazis and turned into a propaganda poster. Churchill the gangster, okay? But this is a Thompson submachine gun, well known in this country, I believe. Um, and they were imported and used before we invented the rather inferior Sten. This was used. This photo was taken outside Hartlepool. And he's, we'll see another picture taken just before this. But this was a characteristic, pugnacious, you know, this is not, this is the right man to be a war leader. You know, a person who's been in the Navy, been in the Army. And uh, a very popular image. You can buy posters and postcards of this, and a lot of people like it. Um, Okay, now, deception, dressing up. We've been talking, the theatre department is sponsoring this. We've been talking about acting and actresses. And one of the great things about Britain is we have this enormous tradition of theatre, pretense, dressing up, all the rest of it. There are two characters here, side by side. Now, um, I'm sure anybody could tell me who the person is on the left. Does anyone like to say who this is? Lawrence of Arabia, in Arab dress, but notice his Western wristwatch. Okay, so he is uh, <laughs> dressed up in, as it were, old gear. But uh, does anyone know who that is? Any guess? That is John Buchan, the writer who ended up and died as Governor General of Canada. And he is the, <laughs> because it was Canada, and I think it was the Blackfeet gave him uh, a headdress and stuff. But what is interesting is that. Here you have British imperialists, or people from the British imperial age, dressing up in the costumes and outfits of the other. Now, John Buchan is the author of a tremendous novel. If you're interested in novels of the, probably the second greatest novel after Kim by Rudyard Kipling is Green Mantle. Now, I don't know if you know Green Mantle. This story was written in 1916. It is about the Germans stirring up Islamic Jihad and what a problem this is going to be for the British. And so they have to get in disguise and go into Germany and Turkey and all the rest of it. It's a tremendous novel, okay, written by John Buchan. But these people are, in a sense, part of what I would call deception in the broadest sense of camouflaging, entering into another world that is not just being in uniforms, okay. Uh, <laughs> this and this are the same person. <laughs> this is Colonel or Brigadier Dudley Clark, the greatest British deceiver of the Second World War. He is the master of the game, according to Thaddeus Holt. He is the man, we'll talk about some of his things later, who brings up or recreates the First World War idea of strategic deception and brings it to terrific uh, theatrical heights to deceive the enemy about what the intentions, plans, movements of the British are. Now, he happened to be arrested in Madrid 
in October 1941, uh, dressed as a woman. And these are police photos from, from the Madrid police. He had some explaining to do, and the correspondence <laughs> went, went up as far as Churchill. What was he doing? Well, he was actually passing false information to Abwehr agents in Madrid. Madrid was neutral at the time, but it was pro-Axis neutral. Uh, no country was truly, truly neutral. Everyone was doing business with one side and the other. Uh, Madrid was heaving with Abwehr agents, and so he'd gone there. And may I say, here he is, a lieutenant colonel in the British Army. He survives this career hiccup and goes on to greater things. So they were tolerant, shall we say. Um, but a great man, really, and a, a man, again, who loved the theater, loved cinema, loved the theatricality of it, had a theatrical imagination. His brother, T.B.E. Clark, was a uh, writer of many of the great Ealing comedies. I don't know if you know, in our British film industry, the Ealing comedies, T.B.E. Clark wrote many of them. Okay. You know what this is. This is a chameleon. And the reason I put this up was because this was the symbol in silver of the first camoufleur, the French um, camouflage crew. The word we, we think of, this is a kind of a lizard that has no defense at all. It lives in Africa and East Africa. And it has a tongue. It has swiveling eyes that are amazing. You'll find them in the biology books, like kind of gum turrets. And it has a tongue that shoots out and catches insects. But it has no defense at all. So basically, it has to stay in a certain place. And because of temperature, it has these mottling. It doesn't adapt to its environment exactly, but it can colorate itself. And it became the living symbol of these people, this new corps in the French army who did camouflage. Now, the word camouflage, as I've said to other people, does not exist in the English language before the First World War. But it exists in nature since creatures started evolving. And I just want to briefly talk about that right now. This is a, um, it has chromatophore cells that can change according to what it is feeling or doing. It's linked to its mood. It's a very subtle system, the way the chameleon works. Um, there is a bad picture, but you get the impression. Okay? This is a snow hare that is, because it is adapted perfectly to its environment, is less likely to be caught by whatever predator there is there. You must think of camouflage in terms of predator-prey relations. Both predators and prey use camouflage. The hunter to conceal himself before he leaps and the other one to protect himself. This is how it evolved. Um, because as an adaptive characteristic, you are more likely to survive, therefore procreate. Therefore, the ones that, you know, if you were black on that snow, you're more likely to be eaten. Another example is a sloth. Very, very slow, incredibly filthy creature covered in insects and, and mold and slime. You know, a kind of typical OSU student. Um, uh, no, not at all. I'm, I'm being very unfair. Students of my university. But, but this is a very slow-moving creature. And essentially, it's covered in parasites and lots of jungle creatures in order to fit and hide better. Because it can't run away from uh, tigers and things like that. Um, that is a bittern, and that's a rather amazing photo. It actually, when threatened, stretches its neck up, and the lines of the feathers correspond to the reeds that it lives among. I mean, there are these remarkable artistic... Um, Nabokov said that, you know, all nature is deception. You know, he was a butterfly man, and he was amazed by butterflies. 
camouflage and mimicry. Here's another one. There's a predator, okay? Why is the polar bear white? Because it can catch the seals, all right? If it was bright, the seals wouldn't see it on the ice. Not tremendous predators, but they're a green snake, perfectly adapted for the jungle. Now, if that was in the Arizona desert, it'd be eaten by an eagle straight away because it would stand out in its environment. Um, now, here's a very interesting little thing. Here is some kind of creature. You can see its eye there. But notice that. That maculation or mottle looks like a sort of little blemish you get on a leaf. And nature has created such a realistic leaf, it's even got the blemishes on it. I mean, that is rather... And there are other examples better than that. There. Can you see? Concealed on a bark, a moth. Um, Again, you know, there was, well, there's lots of stuff you can talk about. Peppered moths. Um, there was a whole theory about evolution in action and the Industrial Revolution, whether blackness in, there's been a lot of dispute about that, but there's no doubt there are environmental impacts that can affect whether a creature is seen or not. And this is protection against birds who come down the bark and eat them. Um, okay, the tiger, the stripes again. Notice the stripe. Um, Notice the, the coloration here. I want you to look at the flank. That color, that color there. And look at this. There's a photo of a deer taken by Hugh Cott. The dappling there and the correspondence with the shadow. Okay, what is actually happening here is you are breaking up the form. And what you're noticing as well is that, for example, if it's lighter on the top where the light comes down, Okay, light comes from above. And so what tends to happen in nature is you get darker on top and lighter underneath, so the shadow. And what happens is you can see there's an outline of a fish there where the effect of lighter underneath and darker above has made it invisible. Let me explain what I mean by counter shading. With cannons, too, they began to learn that if you painted in certain ways that went against the light, you could make the shape alter the form. Here... This is reticulation python skins. What is the effect of all this? You know, it's breaking up the outline of a big smooth snake. Okay, so when it's moving through bracken and bark and stuff like this, you're breaking up the outline. Okay, here is a good explanation of these kind of marks on a creature. You have a fish like that. You put those bars on. It looks outstanding, but put it among coral, it vanishes. A deer. <coughs> Weird, ruptive marks like that breaks up the form. A bird, duh, duh, broken up among stones. This is what these weird marks on creatures. And nobody understood this. Well, this is very strange. No one saw this until the late 19th century. Um, it's really, really quite late. And you start, people start seeing, why are animals colored like this? And they begin to, Poulton is an English biologist and all kinds of other people, and they start talking about adaptive coloration. They see it has a kind of environmental and evolutionary function. And here you have its introduction into warfare, a kind of cubist version of the eruptive marks of nature, the first camouflage done by painters in France. They think, how are we going to break things up? Cubism is the answer. And copy uh, Picasso to break up the outline, the form. And, and, and in this... It's called disruptive pattern, you know, and DPM, disruptive pattern material. Soldiers wear this all the time. This didn't exist before. Um, 
Yeah, just, just briefly on that, the whole thing of, of a little disquisition on uniforms. The first uniforms are a bit like the marching band and the Canadian Mounted Police. They're incredibly bright, incredibly shiny, you know, huge helmet, boom, 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 to frighten people. They are display tactics. They are, we're going to come and scare you with our big red things. Well, when you get the evolution of the rifle, boy, this is great. You've got a fantastic target. The invention of the rifle means that you have to have, you know, a new form of predation. You have to start muddying your uniforms. And so it's around the time of the Indian Mutiny, um, 1857. People start putting dust, kak, khaki, dust-colored. The word khaki comes from Urdu, the Indian army khaki uniforms and the whole evolution of uniforms in the late 19th century towards mud, towards dung, towards earth is, is getting away from being a bloody target. If you had great white belts and a, and a red coat and you have a boa with a mauser lying there in the boa war, you know, she's going to get you straight away. So you have every army starts moving towards gray, blue, different colors. Um, anyway. Now, where are we? Next picture, yes. We're going to move not away from army to two ships. They are the same ship, but it's when the First World War broke out and Churchill was in charge of the Navy, he said, look, we've got to make dummy battleships so the Germans don't know where our fleet is. And that top ship there had its funnel cut off, new stuff put on, and, and it looks like that. But all that is fake. These guns are wood, okay? These are fake tunnels, uh, funnels. The whole thing was to, and it's one of the first memos that Churchill does as, uh, when, the, when the war breaks out. So he was always thinking of forms of trickery like that to fool the enemy. Now, there's another system that he sets up, which is um, the Q-ships. These are fake ships that look like trawlers, a typical Q-boat, as it says here. Now, this looks like an ordinary tramp ship. The warfare in the Navy, uh, in the First World War, what the great weapon was the submarine with the torpedo. Uh, uh, the machine gun paralyzed the troops on land. The torpedo paralyzed the ships at sea. So to catch them, they built these trick ships. And how did a Q-ship work? Here you have a Royal Navy crew. Notice one black sailor. Here they are, Royal Navy crew, all in their uniforms. No, not on a Q-ship. Bang, have to wear ordinary clothes, look like ordinary seamen. Where is he? There he is, same guy. But there they are, now dressed as ordinary seamen. They go on the ship, it looks like a tramp ship, it's dirty, it's filthy, and they go out, the submarine surfaces, the panic party rows away, and bingo, that looks like an ordinary ship. You strip it away, there's the gun hidden. So underneath that is a gun. It's disguised. And this was a Churchill invention of tricking the Germans. There's a hidden gun coming out. There is a gun hidden behind a piece of wood, you know, up there. Uh, you can see it underneath the lifeboat. Very bad picture, I'm afraid. But there it is, swung into action. Bang, 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 sink a submarine, if you can. Now, that's a little bit of the Navy and deception. This man here is Hesketh, Hesketh Pritchard, who was a well-known big-game hunter, and a um, cricketer, sportsman, great chap. And he became the king of the snipers in the First World War. 
I mentioned the invention of the rifle changing uniforms, but it also changed life in the trenches because um, uh, the very beginning of the First World War, people thought it was going to be a war of movement, but very soon it just got paralyzed, it stopped. But sometimes the ground was so muddy, and it was in the very early days of the First World War, it was too muddy to actually dig, dig trenches. So they built parapets like this. So trenches are a little later. The first thing was building parapets. Now, you can see this is an absolutely brilliant British Army parapet. Okay? Lovely straight line. Yeah, you must have a straight line. Bang it flat, because the Army likes straight lines. Okay? Now, I'd just like you to see that gentleman there, that gentleman there. <laughs> and that gentleman there, okay? They have put their heads right over the, the, the line. I want you to notice another thing, and this is a very interesting thing about the First World War. If you look at any pictures of the First World War, and you see these hats, you know you're talking about the first 15 months of the war. Not a single person had a helmet in the First World War until Christmas 1915 or early 1916. I mean, it begins for us in 1914. So you have... 15 months of shrapnel shelling, they have bits of leather, bits of wool on their heads. You will see, you know, for a sniper, that's absolutely brilliant, okay? <laughs> it's perfect, thank you very much. So, what did Hesketh Pritchard say? Break up the outline, just like in nature. You, there are no straight lines in nature, okay? So you break it up. Can you see the guy? No, you can't. Just a simple trick like that, breaking up the outline and then... The Germans used different colored sandbags. They had bits of twinkly bits of glass and tin and, you know, distractive stuff that moved. So you could never get. But the British Army likes to think in straight lines, you know. It, it, it's going into the war with the wrong kind of attitude. Okay, look at that hat. It's brilliant. It reflects the sunlight. It tells the enemy exactly where you are. It says, all right, five inches below that, bing, dead man. Next to him is another guy. This is the emergence of a different kind of sniper, lying in, with his rifle in the Hawkins position underneath the armpit, hidden, concealed, concealment, camouflage, his rifle wrapped in sacking, not clearly like that, but that is another man. So you begin to get, in field combat, at sea, everywhere, you begin to get this hiding and concealment. One element I haven't mentioned, of course, is this, air, this war is the first war with aeroplanes. So spotter planes can come overhead. Oh, I should mention Ohio here. Isn't the aeroplane invented by somebody called Wright? Or the Wright brothers over here? But, but the aeroplane changes warfare forever because people can see. So they begin to hide from the air as well as hide from the rifle here. Okay, there's a guy lying, and he's pretty much invisible, okay? He's six foot four inches tall. He's lying right in the open in the middle of a muddy field. It's, he's eight yards from the camera. He's pretty much invisible. And he's got a muddy robe that is the right kind of color. But this is something new in warfare because, you know, the old thing was stand up straight, walk in straight lines towards the machine guns and die bravely and honorably in a straight line. This is kind of something sneakier but more intelligent. Um, I don't know if anybody here plays golf. Uh, anybody play golf? Okay, great. Yes, terrific. Um, this is something which is quite interesting in 1915. It's a very bad picture, which is you can see these men in a trench that is moving around and is quite well hidden. This is actually dug by Alistair Mackenzie, who became an enormously famous golf course designer, you know, in Scotland, England, Ireland. 
Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, in the USA, Monterey, Augusta, you know, the Open. He designed this golf course. And here in OSU, the Scarlet Course of OSU, designed by Alistair McKenzie. Well, this guy started out, his golf courses are brilliant and follow the lie of the land because he learned it in camouflage in the First World War. He said, in those days when he designed, he didn't have huge bulldozers. He looked at the land and said, okay, how do we do this? How do we move it? And these trenches are very good. But look at the great mistake, the cap, the cap, the cap, the cap, the cap. So you, he's done a brilliant trench, because if you look at this picture, you can't see the trench, but you can see the guy's hats. So the thinking's right in terms of landscape. It's very good in concealment, but still there's a large error. Okay, now here you have a British officer instructing American soldiers, 1917, in the art of camouflage. Notice this gentleman with his stick here, okay? They're all standing there. He said, look, we've hidden a sniper somewhere in this field, guys. Can you spot him? And they're all going around looking. Notice his stick, okay? There's his stick, and there's the guy right at their feet. Okay? We go back. He's in there. All right? This was a trick they used to do all the time. In the, in the, and Hesketh Pritchard, the hunter, invented all this. Sometimes they'd say, where's the sniper? And they'd stand around. He was actually behind them. In, embedded in the sandbags. He was literally two feet behind them. So they did all kinds of tricks like this to start changing the way that what you saw. But that's quite a, an interesting picture, I think. Um, uh, <laughs> I do admit, this, this always gets a laugh, this picture. I don't understand why. But you see, this is actually taken in the camouflage school in the Hyde Park Gardens. But, but, but already you're not got the silly hat, okay? At least, you know, you could poke that up. He's wearing the uniform and all the rest of it. You will see the emergence of the ghillie suit, the kind of standard shaggy, um, uh, you know, sniper robes that you get later. But this is a, a, a kind of a beginning of it. And let us not just think it was the British who, who were doing this. This is a, a very interesting photo from the Gallipoli campaign. There are two Australian soldiers there. And there is a Turkish sniper who's painted himself green and covered himself in foliage. And they were killing a lot of people when they landed there. An Australian said, uh, described this photo as extremely rare. Why is it extremely rare? The bugger's still alive. Because they didn't catch them. As soon as they didn't take them prisoners, they would shoot them. They would see trees and they would spray them. These people would wait until the armies had gone past and wreaked havoc. But again, use of foliage, which is not you know, standard practice when you're used to, this looks like a door, it's not a door. Down there is a machine gun nest, okay, so you're disguising buildings as well. This looks like a corpse, it's not a corpse, it's a fake corpse, okay, totally invented in order to hide behind, or you can sometimes have corpses whose arms moved in enemy uniform, they come out to rescue him, you shoot them. Or you could use it as a hide, dead horses. You know, you begin to use the arts of theater, the arts of uh, presentation to... Um, here is a picture of Churchill, Mr. Churchill, Minister of Munitions, Admiral Bacon, the head of the camouflage school in Hyde Park. And this is a new concealed machine gun post. There's painted canvas here. It's a kind of a dome. And here he is. This is a new and experimental way. Because of the kind of losses of stupider tactics, they're trying to hide and conceal more. It's a rare photo, but an interesting one. This is Norman Wilkinson, a painter of seascapes. And what Norman Wilkinson did, his contribution to camouflage, 
was not hiding ships, but deceiving the eye about ships, distorting the ships. He invented something called dazzle painting. Now, here, you see an ordinary ship going along. You paint it with these weird vortices stripes, and hang on, which way is it going? It is deliberately to deceive a submarine captain as to make him uncertain which way the ship's going when he fires his torpedo. Now, that's giving the, the prey, the ship, an advantage over the predator. And it's breaking up the shape again, just as in nature. This led to some very, very strange effects. Um, it was done, they used to have this captain, this naval um, person is looking through a kind of a periscope and judging according to the stripes which way it's going. So they, they made these models, they painted them, they sent the, the drawings down to the docks, and then they painted whole ships like that. I mean, it's completely bizarre. Thousands of ships were painted in weird colors and stripes. Here's one particular example. And, and it's to try and make the person uncertain whether your stern or your bow, where it is. Um, here is a famous uh, Edward Wadsworth, the vorticist, one of his, uh, all his collections over in Canada. Just incredible stuff. A vast amount of paint all over the, the ship. I'm conscious of the time. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. But, but really, I just want to end on the, the First World War. It happens at sea, it happens because of the air, it happens on land. You're beginning to see, because of the new technologies, um, adaptations, um, changes of shape and coloration to hide and, and conceal yourself. Um, I talk about secrets and, um, uh, the, the title of this talk is Secrets and Lies, and, and I haven't gone wholly into it, but at the same time as that you are trying to conceal yourself, you have to try and break the deadlock of um, being trapped in the trenches or whatever. And so many of these ideas of people like Churchill to try and go through the Dardanelles to, to Russia, or in the Palestine campaign for T. Lawrence to work with Arabs to move these guerrilla forces round on the side in order to draw the Turks away to sever their, their lines. This use of very, very small forces to have a large effect, to effectively hold down lots of Turks by never actually directly attacking them, but cutting the telegraph wire, blowing up the railway so they have to go and send guys down to do it, using uh, people very sparingly. This is in d direct contrast to the kind of warfare where Thousands of people are machine gunned to death by stupid tactics of going straight over the top. I mean, we are talking horrendous figures before the Americans came in. And even the American losses in, in one year of fighting are horrendous. You know, you lose thousands of men um, in throwing rows and rows of people into entrenched, defended positions. Anyway, this was Churchill's private plane. Um, nicknamed Commando. The Commandos, of course, were an invention of the Second World War by Dudley Clark, the deceiver we saw in drag, uh, very much encouraged by Churchill as having a new form, a special force that would go fast, be agile, would move. Anyway, there he is with his cigar uh, um, looking out of his plane. And here's an interesting picture. You remember the one of the machine gun? This was about four minutes beforehand. He's got the same 
he is emerging from what, lo what looks like a seaside roundabout. It isn't at all. It's actually a kind of bunker on the coast near Hartlepool. But all these things had to be concealed. There was an enormous growth in camouflage when Britain was facing invasion in 1940. And it's the thesis of my book that uh, really a massive amount of uh, uh, camouflage and propaganda and deception had to take place after Dunkirk when we were incredibly weak. All of Europe had been conquered. We had lost all our kit, all our tanks, all, everything was left behind at Dunkirk. It was a miracle that, you know, 300,000 men got away, but uh, we really didn't have anything. America did not have a very big army at that time, by the way. It was the 20th in the world. The Dutch had a bigger army than the Americans in May 1940. They had five divisions uh, with First World War equipment, approximately, at, but, but in early 1940. So there's a huge build-up that has to take place before America can come in. But here is Churchill inspecting a deceit, if you like, a completely, you know, I don't whether it fools anybody or not, there is this belief that you can camouflage things to look like other things and that will make you safer. There he is again, same picture, you know, there he is, and it's literally, he comes out, Mr. Churchill, would you like to see a Tommy gun and the picture's taken there. Now, here is one of those interesting behind-the-scenes pictures. This is Second World War, Leamington Spa, this is the sort of tank, the experimental tank, where the Second World War dazzle painting is done and tested. You know, and you have a lot of artists and painters brought in to help in disguise. How can you, you know, lower profiles and hide? And so here are the Tweedy men, you know, putting the background. <laughs> it's really rather nice. Um, lots of people involved in that business. The real uh, beginning of great deception uh, in warfare, in the Second World War, for the British, starts in the Western Desert. After we were locked back in Britain, the, the real fighting started in North Africa. And this looks like a truck. It is not a truck. It is, in fact, a tank, which has got a kind of false top that could be t called a sunshield that could be taken off. And uh, that was a kind of desert tactic. Here is another picture of it taken off, and there... This could be thrown away, and there is the tank revealed. But from the air, because in the desert you get very strong shadows, uh, and a fast spot of plane coming over sees trucks, you hope. This is how you converted a jeep or a sort of ordinary vehicle into a tank. Notice this kind of pipework structure that's put over it. Then you cover it in canvas, like that, and then you paint it. And it looks like that. And that's pretty good, I think, you know. And it drives, too. You know, because you stripped it down, the vehicle's there. So there's all three. And the kind of guys that do this are, you know, engineering people, film prop people, people who fix things and do things. And uh, in the desert, in fact, the great victory, the second battle of Al-Alamein, there's an enormous amount of the movement of models, things hiding inside things that look like other things moving the forces around so it does not look um, uh, on the speed up. Here you see a First World War dummy tank being carried by a lot of Australians. That's heavy. That's made of wood. Okay? Second World War, rubber! <laughs> okay, only four guys. Dunlop Rubber Company, this could be rolled down and carried in a cricket bag by two men. They used hundreds of these in um, Normandy. 
They didn't use them so much in Britain, but they put them in the field, and the guys did lift off and come down, blow them up, blow up a few more, put them out in the field. Good stuff. That's what it looks like. I think that's pretty good. You know, if it's among shrubbery in trees, it's been blown up, you know, it's been inflated, it looks quite realistic to me. Um, dummy planes in North Africa to make the Germans think we were going to invade Greece when we weren't. They could fly over, see these things, okay? At El Adem, that's uh, near uh, Alexandria. Dummy landing craft, also used in North Africa, okay? Um, painted, manufactured out of bits of old scrap, painted with condemned foodstuffs. I mean, you know, it's improvised, pull stuff together. This is bottom of the barrel stuff, okay? Now, I mentioned Lawrence of Arabia, and of course, there he is, okay? The tutelary spirit of special forces. General Wavell, who was in charge of uh, Middle East headquarters, had worked and knew Lawrence in the First World War. He institutes the Long Range Desert Group and the Special Air Service. Now, this is David Sterling of the Special Air Service. The SES is a very interesting unit because it originally was totally fake. It was invented by Dudley Clark to tell the Germans and the Italians that we have paratroops in the Middle East. So you had two guys walking around saying, I can't tell you about it, we've got a secret mission, you know, special forces. And, and anyway, the rumors were spread, photographs taken, we had paratroops, they were called the Special Air Service. So when um, David Sterling wanted to reinvent the commando idea, Dudley Clark, who knew everybody, said, look, I tell you what, use this fictional name, make it real. So what was imaginary now became real. There is David Sterling. And there's, these are two of the guys, um, uh, McDonald and Kennedy, early SAS men, you know, who went out into the desert, these small groups that they did a lot of damage behind the lines, and they are, you know, considered quite important in the whole history of special forces. And um, it evolves here in conjunction with the deceivers. This is a quick picture just of the British. There's... Mount Batten, combined uh, operations, portal of the Air Force. Mr. Churchill and his little, you see how the size he is? Poor old Aaron Brook, his chief of staff, who had to keep all Churchill's mad ideas under control. Um, and that is uh, Dudley Pound, Admiral Dudley Pound, who used to fall asleep a great deal, but could be certain to wake up if you said destroyer or battleship. Okay. <laughs> But this was them off to the conference in, <laughs> in Quebec. Um, but these are the guys that won the war. And Brooke is a fantastically important guy because Churchill would have mad ideas, but Alan Brooke um, would restrain him. And his diary is really worth reading because you see his complete rage against Churchill and yet his total admiration for the man at the same time. Incredibly hard to restrain a kind of boss like that. Um, we're slightly off the, the story there, but, but the, the thing about these people was that the deceivers were very close to the top. They were not tagged on afterwards, way down, low down the intelligence food chain. They were close to operations. If you had an operation and it was possible to use a cover or a deception, then you did it. and You had it close to the central planning. And the deceivers were right in Churchill's bunker in the planning um, department. There's Churchill stepping ashore after, just after D-Day, a week after D-Day. Okay? And now here's just a little bit of Americana for you. This is the Lockheed factory in Burbank, when the war breaks out, possible bombing attacks, you know, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? We need to hide it, 
camouflage it. So area camouflage taking place in California. Look at that factory. Look now. Ooh, same place. Look at that. Look at that. Huge sheets of painted scrim and canvas over the top. There you can see inside. There are some streets, and you can see the covering over the top. So you fly over fast. It looks like fields and houses. Another one there. Looks like fields and houses. It ain't. Underneath is the Lockheed factory. Another one there. You can see the car parks underneath. The Germans did this too. Area camouflage was huge. You could build a dummy city outside. Put the lights up. Have them come over and bomb it. They did that in, uh, in the Blitz. We'd have these huge fires. It looks like burning Bristol. It's not. It's in the middle of Gloucestershire somewhere. So the second wave dropped their bombs on this. And the First World War, they did that. They built a fake version of Paris outside. I know it sounds like the goon show, where they built a fake Britain and had the Germans come and bomb it. But that was only, you know, partly based on the fact that the goons were in the Western Desert and knew this kind of thing was going on. There's more pictures. Area camouflage, area camouflage. And there is a kind of camouflage. This is the great and lovely American photographer, Lee Miller, who was married to Roland Penrose, who taught camouflage at the Home Guard School. And to illustrate the principles of camouflage and to enliven his lectures, in case people were falling asleep, he used to put this slide in. <laughs> and I think it's rather nice. We can contemplate, <laughs> you know, the principle of breaking up the outline of a body, okay? You know, using a net, some kind of stuff, so you can't immediately see what it is. And um, there we are. That's Churchill's Wizards. That concludes the, uh, this, this stage of it, and I would be delighted to answer any of your questions. Is there a microphone? Yes, there is. Mm -hmm. So if anyone wants to stick their hands up. Over here, please. And did the uh, Russians and the Germans... Did the Russians and the Germans uh, use camouflage at all? Yes, enormously. Both the Russians and the, everybody used camouflage. Um, they also used deception. The, the Germans had a vast amount of camouflage in Berlin. There's some amazing photos. There are huge areas where areas of water that could be seen by bombers. These were covered over with, with net. If you look at the aerial reconnaissance books on both sides, they have all these pictures of area camouflage. The Russian word for deception is maskirovna, you know, working with masks. They used it a lot. Everybody did. I haven't really talked about the, the whole side of strategic deception. This has been more a camouflage talk. But the point is, you know, it's a false presentation. You are trying to let the enemy see something else. You know, you th they think it's field, it's not. It's actually the factory. They think there's an army coming over here, it's not. They're getting information through their spies. Those spies aren't their spies. They've been turned, they're double agents. So whatever, you, whatever is being presented to them by secret methods, by observational methods, you know, you're trying to mess with it. You're trying to get it distorted. So I see camouflage as one part, as a subset of deception. You know. and, and everybody did it. I think, I think we were good at it and did some better ones. But yes, please, there's plenty over here. Did you get, uh, Just, uh, I think we need oh, to. Did, did you get kind of an escalation? It all seemed fairly rudimentary. Yes. Did, did you find it escalated, the, the sophistication of it escalating as? Uh, yeah. 
as each side yeah. got, just got better at it. Yes, so. I mean, I've shown you very coarse, crude stuff from the First World War. But again, it's like with technology, all of it evolves in, in relation to the technology. As one technology gets better, I mean, now you have infrared sensors and you have all kinds of things, but you have electromagnetic deceptions to counter those anyway. So whatever the, if it's the Mark I eyeball and you're just hoping to conceal something that a man can see, it's different if it's binoculars. It's different if it's against aerial photography. It depends on the technology being used against you, what kind of camouflage you use or what kind of deception you use. Um, and as I say, camouflage is merely visual deception. There are layers and layers more that are very sophisticated, I think. And I haven't really quite got time to go, to go into it here. There was another question there. Uh, yeah, do you have any sense as the degree to which this was militarily consequential? It was Very it marginal or did it make yeah. a big difference? Well, I think you're quite right that much of it is marginal and probably pointless. And, uh, but in terms of strategic deception, it is, I believe it is absolutely crucial. If you look at something like D-Day and the massive uh, deceptions there known as Operation Bodyguard, particularly Operation Fortitude South, which was years of work towards persuading German intelligence that there was a huge army, the first United States Army group in Kent, led by General Patton, and it was going to go across the channel. And the Germans, listen, there was an invasion in Normandy, but this is a feint. The real invasion is coming to Calais, nearer to Germany. And believe me, you know how many divisions the British have got, because over the years we've built up a notional order of battle that is far bigger than it really was. And that, I think, had a very crucial effect. Like, people can argue, uh, and there are other deceptions like this, but I think that, which is probably the greatest military deception in history, uh, had a crucial effect because it's 19, 20, or 21 divisions are held back, not for days, but for weeks and even for months. And that made a crucial difference because if they had gone down there, there was nothing in Kent. So if they had gone to the Normandy beaches, it might have been even worse before people could break out. And I think Eisenhower recognizes that, Montgomery recognizes that, and many, you know, much more serious military historians and a journalist like me also acknowledge that that is a crucial deception. And it worked on many levels. It wasn't just through double agents. There was all kinds of electromagnetic deception too. They had airplanes flying in a circle, dropping chaff or window, as it was called then, that created for the very few radar sets that they had left. They blinded most of them. They left a few that gave the impression of a fleet moving towards Calais. All kinds of things like this. They had dummy parachutists that would drop behind the lines in order to distract people and send them off. There was a panoply of um, uh, effects and sub-plans to baffle and get the Germans on the wrong foot. Because if D-Day had failed, and it could have failed, a huge storm blew up, as you know, within two weeks, uh, if they had not managed to establish themselves on the beaches, and if D-Day had failed, Eisenhower had a message in his pocket saying it was his fault if it had failed. My goodness, they might have built the V-3 rocket, which could have reached New York. The war might have gone on to 46. Maybe? Sure. The question is, how does that compare to the Americans guessing right about the weather and the Germans guessing wrong about the weather? Well, there's that element, too. I mean, there's skill in that, and there's luck. I mean, the fact is, luck, as we know, plays an enormous part. Uh, what if the weather had gone differently? Uh, uh, 
You can call it fate, you can call it luck. Churchill didn't believe in God, but he certainly believed in fate and chance and luck and uh, providence and all those words. There's a whole section he has on that. We were lucky as well. Mind you, it was a vast, um, uh, logistic, hugely uh, well-planned logistic operation. The biggest amphibious invasion in history. Um, all these nations, all these people, uh, ultimately about a million million men or something. I mean, you know, you probably know lots more about it than me. But uh, uh, it hinged, as all great operations do, on, on elements you can't calculate. We know the answer now, but trying to think back to the 5th and the 6th of June and what it must have felt like or <coughs> what it must have been like to commit those people and not know what the outcome will be like. And so when it's hinged like that, if you can get just a little bit of advantage through trickery or deception, it's worth doing. And the aim was, I suppose, they, the deceivers like to say, the aim was to save lives. Um, and they, you know, people like Garbo, the double agent, or Dudley Clark, they said the justification for what they did was that, you know, they, they saved a lot of lives, probably. Or one hopes they did. Any more questions? Yes, sir. Just, just a sec here. Uh, between the wars, uh, was there a lot of effort put into developing creative ways for deception, or was most of it made um, very quickly? I think that's a very good question, because what was so interesting, I re did read one camouflage person who said, we had to start again, completely from scratch, because the British Army had a rule that 20 years after something had been used, it had to be scrapped. So in 1938, they binned all the camouflage stuff. So they had to start all over again. I don't think they had at all. I mean, the point was that camouflage was secret in the First World War. You weren't allowed to talk about it because the point of camouflage was to hide the fact that you had hidden something. You didn't tell people. You didn't say, hey, this is camouflage, because then you bomb it. I mean, that's, people thought if you painted it green, it was camouflage. No, it wasn't. You shouldn't know it was camouflage. This is the point. It was secret. But then after the war, it came out in the encyclopedias. People wrote books about it. And everybody was obsessed with camouflage in 1938. You should read the letters to the newspaper about camouflage. Everyone's got an idea about it. Everybody wants to paint everything. And the paint manufacturers want you to buy paint to paint everything. So it becomes a kind of... And some of it is ridiculous. It is, you know, you say, is it consequential? Well, that gentleman asked, was it consequential? I mean, you'd have gas, um, you know, those huge gas towers, and people would paint palm trees on them. <laughs> you know, as, as, and sunsets, as though somehow this was... This is not camouflage at all. It's, it's ridiculous. But so the, the point about, the, the, in the wider sense of deception, the guy who's deceived is not meant to know that he's being deceived. This is, but if he does, and if he's aware that you are tricking him or his agents are, are, you know, are turned, then the whole thing is blown. So you have to you know, maintain the secrecy of it somehow. I don't think much work was done on it at all. And I think it was all reinvented or rethought up. So what is interesting is that many of the same people come back. You know, uh, it's, uh, they did it once, they come back and do it again in a different way. Uh, how, how exactly did they make an entire city, like, appear? Like, you said they made a like, fake France. Yeah, so well, they, like, I that's mean, a rather large region. Yeah, no, you didn't do the whole of France. What I'm trying to say was that like they tried Paris, to... Paris, yeah. the, in Paris, well, this plan was never quite 
It's a very good question. I'm sorry. I mean, it's a bit like the Borges story, the man who makes the map that's the same size as the country that it's meant to represent. <laughs> and some tattered remnants are found of this map later. No, I don't mean to say that. What they were trying to do was to get bombers at night. If you blacked out, say, a city, and then you could try to put systems of lighting or fires in a certain place that was away, um, hopefully the bombers would go there. Because not all the navigation was incredibly accurate. Um, and what they did was they, they got this initial French plan was they, they you know, requisitioned a whole lot of fields northeast of France, and they started laying out the railway stations, roughly, which is very crude, with lights on it. To, so someone looks down and they think, my god, that's the sort of the shape. And there were other plans to do this in the Second World War. I mean, the, the, main, the main use of it, as I say, was at night. Um, so there were dummy, dummy airfields, all kinds of things like this. The famous story that's quoted in every book and from every nationality is that they build this dummy airfield and it's got fake planes and guys who run around and rev engines and things. And then the enemy, and I've heard this story said about Italians, British, and Germans, the enemy fly over and drop a wooden bomb on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have to understand that sometimes they know what you're doing because you're in the same game too. Every, you know, it's not as though, hey, we've never thought of camouflage. No, everybody's doing it. But you, it, 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 are you totally certain? This is the point. Um, and, and if the guy's wasting ammunition or dropping bombs in the wrong place, they worked it out. There's a, there is a figure that probably, you know, it saved a few thousand lives. Basically, you drop something. There's some statistic, like it's a thousand tons of bombs or a hundred tons of bombs to kill one person. I mean, it's, it's hugely wasteful. The history of bombing is the history of wastefulness and dumbness, in, in my view. I mean, it's a horrible thing. Um, I, I have this point of view because I wrote about Guernica, and so I was interested in the history of the bombing of civilians and all the rest of it. But most bombing, though people on the ground think it's incredibly accurate, isn't. It goes in the wrong place. It nearly always goes in the wrong place. And it's a weapon of mass destruction, so it's not exactly subtle. Um, it's like brain surgery with a five-pound hammer. Um, so if you could get them to waste their bombs somewhere, this would probably save lives, you know? And, and it did. They did a calculation, and then it saved a few thousand lives. You do have to understand that the Blitz was incredibly destructive in England. Um, you know, we lost tens of thousands of people. Uh, nightly, the Blitz began on the 7th of, October, 7th of September 1940, when the sort of air battle had failed. And they would just send in incendiaries, waves after stuff, and at night they'd come in and just pour more into the fires already there. So this idea of lighting false fires for the second wave because they used incendiaries as they used incendiaries on Guernica, the same make of incendiaries from the same factory, in fact. So what happened in Spain started to happen to British people too. So by putting these fake fires and fake fighter stations and things like that, you hoped to get them to waste their ammunition, just as so-called dummy Chinese attacks where you snapped up figures in the First World War, they start blazing away, wasting all their ammunition on cardboard cutouts. You are, you know, in some way, getting them to waste their time and effort. And, and that's part of warfare, I suppose. Yes, sir. You said that these were really popular um, with the public, but was there much resistance um, 
in, in the military to some of these like really extravagant and bold, like, like the, the warships with the, the crazy painting. I mean, it, it just seems counterintuitive, so I don't know how. No, no, I, I think uh, it's a very good question because I do think, uh, and there are military people here and they may correct me if I'm wrong, but they're very often uh, quite conservative people in the military who do are resistant to new ideas. Um, and this isn't the way we do it, and this is a standard way of doing it. And uh, uh, yeah, there is continually resistance. Um, in the book, I describe various people who introduced new techniques, techniques in, in camouflage, in tactical deception, strategic deception, sniping, whatever it might be. And every single one of these people suffered. Every single one of these people had pain from this, okay? It is never easy to be the new ideas guy. It's much easier to conform, right? You know, uh, kissing your ass is easier than uh, changing things, you know? It just, it just is, it's just a fact. So, so being a pioneer is always difficult, but of course, one generation later, it's the accepted new thing, you know? It, 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 it's the way it evolves somehow. Um, I think, Yes, there were people in the Navy who thought it was absolutely ridiculous. Now, there's an argument about this dazzle painting, whether it did work, because they also had a huge fight at that time about whether to institute convoys. Now, they used to use convoys in the Napoleonic era, but the, the modern Navy said, no, no, we don't want convoys. We haven't got the ships anyway, and lots of ships were being sunk. And they introduced this dazzle painting at the same time as convoys, so it's probably the convoy system that lowered the shipping but also the dazzle painting, the figures went down. So a lot of people, in a kind of magical way, said, if my ship gets painted like this, I'm going to be safe. You know, it's some kind of protection. So, well, resistance. Uh, yeah, I think, and bureaucracy, and how do you organize it? And who's got the money? And there's always these kind of hassles. Um, uh, but I think generally, um, my main point would be uh, it's difficult to, to... Little Heart said there's only one thing harder than introducing a new idea to the British Army, and that is getting an old one out. You know, he saw it that way. This is the people who wouldn't give up cavalry for armor and tanks. Of course the horse is going to stay forever. You know? I mean, these are the people who would like to go into battle in red uniforms. So it's always... You know, it changes, and they always say that generals are preparing for the last war. It does move slowly in the, in the culture, I think. Maybe that's true now. I don't know. But um, we'll speak. Yes, ma'am. In terms of how the art of camouflage evolved, especially after the experience of World War I, I'm wondering, um, in World War II, what about the art of counter-deception? like code breaking kind of, yeah. you know, that, so we have the creators and then we have probably a line of people who are... You're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, uh, this is an area I, I couldn't, because we've got a very brief time and I'm showing just some pictures, the, the book, the whole thing about deception is, well, you have to factor in this whole area of signals intelligence and sending false messages and listening to and knowing what the other people are doing. There is a bigger picture. I, I mean, the book is a, you know... Um, sort of popular looking at this of, of, of camouflage, of strategic deception, but also secret intelligence and special forces. They all work together in some way. Because if you know what the other people are doing or, or thinking, or you can feed them false information, 
which is not visual at all. It's coming through their wireless. They're picking up radio traffic. Hey, there's a lot of activity in East Anglia. General Patton's going down from, from Wentworth to, to Kent. You know, the king's coming to inspect Dover. You know, all this traffic, they're decoding it, the Y service, they're sending it to Abvar Intelligence, and, and they, you know, they know the order of battle, all this, but it's all false. You've hired hundreds of guys who used to be in Sicily, so they recognize their fist, to sit there sending false messages, because this is all part of the picture, of, you know, the false presentation. So, so I, that is linked to camouflage in, in, in the broader sense of, of a deception, the presentation of a, you know, a cloud of false information. So I think that that's the level when the gentleman asked whether it was, you know, it was all very coarse, is whether it becomes sophisticated. This, at this level, it becomes very sophisticated because you're messing with their head completely. They don't know what is true. Yes, two more at the back. Um, with those Q, with those Q ships in yeah. World War One, were they assuming that the submarine would surface? Yes, because That's that kind of like defeats the whole purpose of the submarine, which yeah. would work like for the British. No, the thing about the submarine was remember they only had a limited number of torpedoes, and you didn't torpedo. There was also a thing about at the very beginning of the war, um, uh, there were rules about how submarines tackled ships. And basically, they surfaced, and you had to abandon the ship, and then they sank the ship by gunfire. The later thing of staying hidden, the wolf pack technique of World War II, where you, 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 know, you work at night, and you torpedo without warning. Uh, and also, it saved your torpedoes for bigger targets. You would basically come out, you've got a gun, it's a cargo ship, you, it, you know from the flag that it's an enemy ship. There are certain rules on whether it was neutrals or not. And they were meant to abandon ship. And so when I mentioned the panic party rowing away, it looks like the crew is leaving. And then you are going to sink the ship. But they've left someone behind, and they're doing it. But it all worked on the technique that submarines surfaced to do it. I mean, you have to look at you know, how much air they had, how they communicated. The whole, they had to surface to send radio messages. That's a very important thing in the Second World War. So you could locate them because they came up. You could get a fix on the signal, have six different places, make what were called cuts. Then you could locate where the submarine was. So coming to the surface was their, their tactic, and this was a counter to that tactic. I mean, I agree, a submerged submarine that sank the Lusitania, this isn't going to work. You know, He's just going to fire a torpedo at you. But these small ships, they wouldn't waste a torpedo on them. Cheaper to use the, the, the deck gun. Okay, I have a, a question from a perspective of international politics. Um, one uh, context, why the strategic deception played such a great role in World War I, in World War II, or even during the Cold War, was that there was lack of information, I mean, for policymakers, at least in, in terms of international interaction. Uh, I'm, my question is more of a contemporary relevance whether you think the current era, we talk about the globalization or information age, in many situations there, 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 are too many, too, there is too much information in all aspects of topics, Absolutely. whether that is change the pattern or implication of this. Sure. I mean, I, I think the simple answer to that is if you want to do strategic deception, now you do it through the mass media. 
I mean, you're not meant to say that, and you're not meant to, you know, it's against the rules and all the rest of it, but, you know, hey, there's vast amount of information out there. What is it? It's true. You know, I mean, you, the Internet's very interesting, the rise of the Internet. I remember when I worked for the BBC, going during the Yugoslav Wars, seeing the stuff coming out of Serbia. Was really, there would be these kind of pseudo, they were like news stories. They're, Here's an atrocity. This church has been shelled and stuff. Now, all this stuff's fake. You know, everyone's manipulating and doing stuff. This is now explosive. This is viral. The level of deception and, uh, you know, what is truth, what is reliable, where this stuff comes from. You know, the so-called rise of citizen journalism as real papers collapse. Who's a citizen journalist? You know, anybody who's got a laptop and a camera. Do you remember flying saucer photos and what a great thing it was? You'd get them into the paper. You know, you get a cup and, <laughs> and a frisbee and photograph it and you get to be famous. I mean, it's what you can do with the internet now. And uh, So how you grade information, how you process it, this is an enormous problem. It's not my grade. I'm talking to you the analog age. This is way back simple, crude stuff for five-year-olds. I have no idea. So the answer to your question, I do not know anything about the Cold War. I do not know what's going on currently now. But I would recommend you to be skeptical when people say to you, oh, Mr. Saddam has got weapons of mass destruction or whatever it might be. It might not be true. <laughs> you know? And uh, so, you know, I think uh, an educated public should be skeptical about suddenly a huge storm blows up about something. Why are they wanting us to be interested in this? You know, the conjurer does, hey, look at this, look at this hand here. He's doing something over here. So just be skeptical. I mean, I'm, I'm not paranoid about it at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, I mean, you, know, you, have to be, you have to be skeptical, really. Um, I don't know if that's the answer, but there we are. Any more questions, please? On something simpler than that? <laughs> yes, sir. Was there any particular use of sound? As camouflage. Oh, yeah, brilliant question. Absolutely. They got in the desert, the first use I, I have of this, because I got interested in this because the man I wrote about before, George Steer, used to do um, frontline broadcasting in enemy languages to the enemy to try and get them to come over. And he did it in Ethiopian languages, did it in German, did it in Italian, did it in Japanese. But there was a deception in Hellfire Pass where they got an Egyptian film crew to record all these sounds of tank engines revving and starting up. <laughs> and then they take these off, you know, these recordings, and they get loudspeakers, and they play them. And, you know, in the desert night, Christ, there's a whole lot of tank. You can't see them, but they did use sound. And the beach jumpers, um, who was that? Uh, David Niven was involved in that. They went in and they played sounds. Um, the, uh, those, I mentioned those dummy parachutists and stuff coming down on D-Day. Some of them have recordings of battle, orders being shouted, chemicals that smelled of gun smoke, um, and a couple of SAS men among them. So you could pretend you had half a battalion down there, and it's all sound effects. Yep, I mean, sonic deception, big thing. They have these cars with loudspeakers on. Uh, after my book came out, I had some correspondence with some gentlemen who were involved in this. Uh, yeah, any means going. Um, sound, and uh, sound, smell, uh, you know, it's more than just visual. So, can, can, you know, yes, sonic deception, very much so. 
Yes, Brian. Um, Just to say. As you told it, um, everybody practiced uh, deception and camouflage in both world wars, and they leapfrogged over each other, they imitated each other, and so on and so forth. Was there anything wrong, of course? No, 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 no. I just wondered, um, because you didn't touch on it, why you thought the British had a, any particular genius in this, apart from the fact they're a theatrical nation and so on and so forth. But Okay, I'll give you two examples. Yes, good, good. I, I mean, two examples, which are stories I haven't told here, uh, but they are quite famous because they became films. But, but um, Operation Mincemeat, known as The Man Who Never Was, which was the planting of a corpse, a genuine corpse with false papers, from a submarine off Spain, where it would be picked up by fishermen, and they knew there were German agents there, and the contents of this briefcase would then be examined, photographed, and go up the food chain of German intelligence. And there were amazing letters in there. The attention to detail, you know, the, all his papers, his identity, his Catholic cross. And, uh, because it's a Catholic country, maybe they'd be, treat the body better, stuff like this. His whole identity, letters from his girlfriend, letters from his father, letters from his bank manager, tickets to the theater, the exact show, box of matches, his pipe, um, and all the letters, genuine signed letters from real people that could be plausible. Uh, proofs of a book being sent to Eisenhower, all kinds of stuff in this bag that, that, that creates a really convincing scenario that, yes, they're going to invade Sardinia and Greece, but not Sicily, which is the real place. And this operation um, worked. I mean, the, the information went up the food chain. That's one. Another one is I was Monty's double, the famous case where just before D-Day, they found an actor, and this was Dudley Clark in the cinema. I watched Seven Graves to Cairo. He sees this actor, Eric von Stroheim, playing Rommel. And another actor briefly appears as, as Montgomery. And he says, that's a good idea. Why don't we get an actor? And they find a guy in the pay corps who looks exactly like Montgomery. And when he's preparing to invade Normandy, they send this actor to Gibraltar, Algiers, dressed as Monty, going around meeting people to make... And the, you know, the Germans said, well, what's Monty's touring the people here? He, he obviously can't be doing anything over in Normandy. And this was an acting job. This was a sheer, and everybody else has got to play along with it. You have to rehearse it. He meets Monty. He studies his gestures. They both discover they're colonials. Um, they have a curiously similar background. But anyway, you know, the actor has to impersonate this man and goes off and does it. Um, and there are things like that, the, and, and the use of the double agents, that somehow there's something tricksy about the British that kind of works. The Americans don't, they do it, they do join in, but they're not quite as good as the British because it's not their natural grain to do it. Whereas the British are twisters in some ways. I mean, you know, uh, the empire was a huge bluff in some sense. It's carried off through a kind of acting. You, you don't have enough people to do it. But if you can pretend and go through it and uh, go around commanding people, you can carry it off. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the way it works. Um, until 1776, of course, but there we are. But, uh, some bits break away. Uh, we, we allowed them to do that. Um, no, but what, what I, what I, my point is, the, the serious point is that, that uh, um, just as those weak animals in the camouflage, when Britain was incredibly weak, and did not have the forces 
on the Chinese principle, you know, if you are weak, pretend to be strong. That, you know, Sun Tzu says all warfare is based on deception. This is when it was necessary. When your back is to the wall and you've got nothing, what are you going to do? You shout louder for a start, so you, you know, you big up your propaganda. It's like the dog that barks the loudest. So you pretend to be, and somehow we've got the ability to do this, and the ability to organize it quite well. I think organization counted. Better organization of the intelligence than the Germans had who were fighting each other. Yes, please. Effective deception requires a willing accomplice, in this case, the Wehrmacht, which not only fell for British deception, but Soviet deception um, in a big way, if you look at, say, the destruction of Army Group Center in 1944. Yeah. I'm wondering if you looked in your book at British deception and camouflage and so forth in the Pacific War against Japan and whether Japan was quite as willing uh, accomplice as uh, Germany was. You put your finger right on something that I deal with briefly, but the man who was in charge of British deception against the Japanese, Peter Fleming, the brother of Ian Fleming, working with General Wavell, who'd gone from the desert over there, it didn't work against the Japanese. And partly the reason was structurally, but they despised their intelligence and uh, didn't listen to them and didn't think they were important. And so they, they, they created a wonderful, elaborate haversack ruse with one of Wavell's uniforms and letters and, and fake documents. Again, like the man who never was, but like the earlier haversack ruse that Minot Sargon used in, the, um, in, in and, and they just didn't buy it. It didn't work. So they, they found they, they spent their money better by getting double agents to pass vast amounts of false information and get the Japanese to pay a lot of money for it. So they made a great deal of money from the Japanese buying false information, but deception didn't seem to work because the, the food chain was not the same. And I think that if you look at the Wehrmacht and you look at the, the systems whereby information was processed, the British and American under and Soviet understanding of how that worked and how the Germans thought meant you could tamper with it much better. It didn't work with the Japanese. Um, I mean... Uh, I, it's not my area. There is, uh, in Thaddeus Holt's book, The Deceivers, he covers that much better. But I just tell one funny story, and that's it. I think it's probably coming towards the end of time. But if, seriously, has anybody got one more question? Going, going, oh, there is one, yes. Here we are. Um, would you say that um, the modern weaponry or trickery uh, played a greater role in changing modern warfare? I, I probably don't know enough to answer a question like that. I think, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a relentless materialist about these matters of warfare in that it's the technology that drives it, really. And, and it seems to me the whole, you know, from the invention of, I don't know, the sling or the bow or the edged weapon or, or whatever, the, the technologies will have an effect on what people do. And so you have this call and response. You have the, the, the effect and, the, and the, it's, they react to each other. I mean, but even so, people can do, low-tech people can do stuff against high-tech things. I mean, I'm sure with, you know, the new drones and the new surveillance, people will invent new ways of evading it. People can do things with their urine or heat centers. They can hide and mask you know, if there's someone is de detecting body heat, 
you can fake a way of making false body heat somehow, creating fires to do it. You can conceal your own heat. You can use urine. You can use very low-tech things to evade. And people will come up with something. I mean, endlessly what happens in warfare, somebody comes up with, I mean, it's IEDs at the moment that is killing most of the um, soldiers in, in, in Afghanistan. And somehow they will counter this, I suppose, because somebody invents something, then there's a counter-invention. It always goes like that. But I can't really answer your question. It's kind of beyond my brief, really. And I don't really know enough about the subject at all, he said self-pityingly and pathetically. Um, <laughs> But, no, thank you for the question anyway. I don't know, really. But, but the arms race will continue. It always continues. That's it. Anyway, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>